everybody, and welcome to the Clinical Concepts Podcast. This is Jonathan, and I'm here to talk to you today about a topic that, uh, honestly, I never thought I would be talking to anyone about. So it was the other day, I was uh, out and about running some errands, and I left a bookstore in the town in which I leave, or town in which I live, and I was leaving the bookstore, and I was sitting at a red light, and to to my left, I looked and I saw one of those big, I don't really know what to call them, but they looked like a, a, the balloon things that the car dealers have that they inflate and they're like the big people that you know, wiggle all around in the air. And I saw one of those and it caught my attention, but it looked different. It didn't look like a person. And when I looked at it a little bit more, it was actually a marijuana leaf. And that caught my attention for sure. So I actually drove across the street uh, to an intersection. So I actually had a better view of what I was looking at. And it turns out that the business that had used to be, uh, it used to have been in the parking lot where we were, had closed. And the uh, business that is there now is a medical marijuana dispensary. So I thought to myself, hmm, who knew? And sort of went along my way and didn't think much else about it. And then... Ironically, a couple of days later, I was talking to one of our paramedics who said that they were taking care of this patient who uh, was a chronic cannabis user and they were just vomiting and couldn't get this patient comfortable. And the patient was was incredibly nice and incredibly uh, willing to receive the help. But it was just one of those patients that no matter what you did, you just couldn't make them comfortable. And I thought to myself, with the uh, addition of that medical marijuana uh, dispensary, in addition with some others that we have in the town in which I live, maybe we should spend some time talking about something that we don't talk about that much, which is cannabis hyperemesis syndrome. So cannabis, cannabis hyperemesis syndrome. So what is it? So first and foremost, let's break it down. So cannabis is a psychoactive drug and it comes from the cannabis plant, which is native to uh, native to Asia, specifically in the central and southern uh, regions of Asia of Asia. And it has this ingredient in the uh, in the plant, which is tetrahydrocannabinol. And I apologize if I pronounce that incorrectly, but that's at least how I always have found it to be pronounced. And it's abbreviated THC. So we'll just stick with that. And the THC is actually the psychoactive component of the cannabis. So when you when you speak with people who are under the influence of marijuana and they have that sort of uh, mellowed out state, sometimes they even have um, uh, auras or hallucinations that comes from the THC that is the psychoactive component of the cannabis. And along with the THC, there's actually upwards of almost 500 other compounds that make up the marijuana plant. So the marijuana plant and or cannabis plant, either way, that's, they're synonymous, is actually very a very complex uh, a complex structure, and there are about sixty five other cannabinoids amongst those nearly five hundred. Uh, compounds that are in that plant. So it is a highly complex structure uh, when we when we when we evaluate uh, the plant from a botany perspective. So there are about 2.6 million new users of cannabis every year. So it is a highly used drug and is actually the most commonly abused drug uh, other than alcohol. So that is an interesting statistic to know about, and it is most prevalent in the 18 to 25 year old 
uh, age demographic. And if you think about the patients that you've taken care of, that often makes sense. Certainly, we have all taken care of patients that were under the influence of, of cannabis at a younger age. Maybe they were in high school or, or cannabis users that are, that are older. I've taken care of some elderly cannabis users. But nonetheless, if you think about the people in generalities that you take care of, it's usually in the 18 to 25-year-old age demographic. So if we put a pause on that for a second, let's come back to what is hyperemesis. So when we think about hyperemesis, we really are thinking about severe and prolonged vomiting. And I can't speak for any of you guys, but I don't like being nauseated. I don't like vomiting. So I can't even imagine what this would feel like being in a state of hyperemesis. And anytime I take care of a patient that's in a hyperemesis state, whether it's from marijuana use, pregnancy, other illness, whatever it might be, I try to make those people feel as comfortable as possible because I know that I personally hate that feeling. So hyperemesis is this severe and prolonged vomiting. And we put them together, cannabis hyperemesis syndrome, what do you get? Prolonged and severe vomiting from cannabis. Makes sense. The interesting part about this is that a lot of times in a lot of of indigenous cultures, they actually use cannabis as an anti-emetic. So in a lot of in a lot of places, they'll actually use cannabis to prevent vomiting. And you're thinking to yourself, well, wait a second, we're talking about how it causes vomiting. And actually, the the uh, action mechanisms of cannabis can cause both. So when we have these patients of cannabis hyperemesis syndrome, these are patients that have cyclic and chronic nausea and vomiting caused by their long-term cannabis use. So for sake of this talk, we're going to define that as greater than a year. And these folks have this recurring ep- these recurring episodes, and accompanying that is often dehydration and abdominal pain. And these folks generally have normal stools. They generally uh, are not complaining of other GI symptoms, just this diffuse pain abdominally, as well as their nausea and vomiting. And then, of course, the dehydration comes along with that uh, from the prolonged uh, time of vomiting. And these patients often go to the emergency department. And when they go to the emergency department, they get this whole plethora of tests done. They get labs done. They get abdominal CTs. They get x-rays. They get all of the things. And then they're often discharged with some Zofran or some Phenergan and they go home and the problem is then they represent in the emergency department with a day or two because in hypercannabis hyperemesis syndrome, they'll have periods of remission. And I don't really know how else to describe that other than there's times where this affects them and then there's times where it doesn't. So they'll end up in this period of remission and it'll be okay for a couple of days. And then they'll end up back in the emergency department because they're sick again and they have nausea and they're vomiting and they're these ill appearing people. So they get worked up again with this plethora of potentially unnecessary exams. And they're not getting fixed. And then in EMS, we often cone this patient as the frequent flyer. And we can all think of those patients that we've taken care of many times. I know that there's several patients in, in, in my career. Not only have I taken care of more than once, that I've intubated more than once. So, so we take care of these patients. And instead of thinking of them as a system abuser, we have to start thinking about maybe they're quote unquote abusing the system because the system doesn't work. So they present in the emergency department, not because they don't have anything better to do on a Tuesday, but because they're still sick. And prior to presenting in the emergency department, sometimes they present to EMS. And we have to take a really good history and understand 
what it is that we're dealing with and maybe treat them appropriately. So this talk is not to not to minimize or maximize anybody's feelings on, on marijuana and its uses uh, medically or recreationally. Marijuana is a drug and a medication, and just like any other drug or medication, it has benefits and it has side effects. So this is not a, a for or against talk. This is just we're going to an approach it scientifically uh, a, a scientific talk to marijuana so and cannabis. So here we go. So in the patho, of cannabis hyperemesis syndrome, your body has two cannabinoid receptors, CB1 and CB2 receptors. And we can get really deep into this. Uh, but from an EMS perspective, I'm not sure that anybody is really interested in that nerdiness um, that I'll, although I enjoy, I don't think most people do. So they have these CB1 and these CB2 cannabinoid receptors, and they activate when they're exposed to THC. So what you got to remember is when you ingest marijuana, whether that be inhale it, eat it, uh, absorb it, however it is that you do it, uh, it is it is then uh, affecting these CB1 and CB2 receptors in their brain. And when these CB1 and CB2 receptors are stimulated, they can actually have anti-emetic effects like we talked about. So in some indigenous cultures, they actually use marijuana for nausea in some, in some patients that we talk about here um, that are chronically ill, they'll use it for nausea, but they will actually use this as an anti-emetic. The problem becomes when we stimulate the CB1 and CB2 receptors often, these receptors, much like anything else, become sort of, for lack of a better word, immune to that stimulation. And when that happens, it causes the opposite effect. So when we use marijuana and stimulate these receptors frequently, we are actually overstimulating our CB1 and CB2 receptors. And when that happens, instead of having an anti-emetic effect, it's actually having the effect that's opposite, which is the causing of the nausea and vomiting. Why does this happen? It happens because they, number one, they relax your esophageal sphincter. So your esophageal sphincter is essentially the go-between between your esophagus and your stomach. And when we relax that sphincter, you vomit. That makes sense. It doesn't hold anything down into your, into your stomach. And the other thing that it does is that it alters their gastric motility. So the breakdown of, of food and, and, and uh, substances in your stomach. And when that gastric motility alters, it results in nausea and vomiting and abdominal pain because this is a very painful physiologic process to interrupt. So when this happens, these folks end up in a constant state of, of feeling nauseated and vomiting because they're just constantly stimulating their CB1 and their CB2 receptors. And the other problem, the other problem is that T TCA, T I'm sorry, THC and cannabis actually have almost a 30 plus hour half-life. So because of this, the scepters remain active for a long time. So if somebody is a habitual, a habitual user of cannabis, they're continuously putting these receptors in a state of stimulation and activation, which is what's causing this. So the only way that these patients often find relief outside of hospitalization and some pharmacologic therapies is with warm bathing. And the reason that warm bathing helps these patients is that it is a stimulator. The heat from the, from the hot water, from the shower, or the bathtub, or whatever you do, is a stimulator of the TRPV1 receptor. And what that is, is basically the receptor that 
allows your CB1 and CB2 receptors to essentially deactivate. Although it doesn't really over uh, deactivate them, it just sort of overshadows them. And when this happens, it takes their nausea and their pain away. And this is a learned behavior. They will actually uh, learn this behavior from their peers and other people that are experiencing this. But warm bathing is the quote unquote stay at home fix for this. What do we know the problem with that is? You can't stay in the shower forever. So what does this look like from an assessment perspective? So when you get to that patient's house, obviously we are we are um, ensuring for our safety and BSI and all those things. So we're going into the house. And what do you expect to see? You expect to see a patient that looks sick. These patients often look very uncomfortable. They're pale in appearance. They often are diaphoretic. They have very poor skin turgor. They look sick. And when we're gathering our history for these patients, we, we ask them about all of the normal things. So we're going to do our sample history, our OPQRSTs, and we're going to get a good history. And the question that I always ask people is, do you have any bad habits? Smoke, drink, do drugs. Because if you walk up to somebody and you say, do you use marijuana? They might get offended. Versus if I just say, hey, look, I'm just trying to figure out the best way to help you. Do you have any bad habits that I need to know about? Do you smoke? Do you drink? Do you do any drugs? And often they're very forthcoming about this. People that use marijuana recreationally will often answer your question at that point. If they don't and they use it for a medical purpose, they will often include it in their medication list. And if they do include it in their medication list, make a note of it. We don't necessarily have to dive into how they take it, why they take it, how often do they use it, do you abuse it? Those questions often do not make a huge difference in our care. There are some things that I want to know. I do, I do care a little bit about how you take it, and I do care about how often because that might have an effect uh, on me making my working diagnosis for my differential and treating you. But generally speaking, as an EMS provider, I'm not really interested in whether or not you are using your medical marijuana card for recreational purposes. I'm not really interested in whether or not you're abusing it. My job is to just simply help you fix your problem. So whether you're using it recreationally or medically, we're going to make a note that they're a cannabis user. And do they fit the bill? So do they have this severe cyclic nausea and vomiting? Most likely the answer is yes. So ask them about that. Are you nauseated and are you vomiting? And if so, how long has this been going on? And then dig it down. So have you been seen for this before? Have you been in the emergency department for this before? Yes or no? If yes, what have they done to, that has helped you? What have they done that has provided you some relief? See what they say. Again, ask them also about their abdominal pain. Do you have any pain in your belly? If yes, where is it? Is it high? Is it low? Does it go anywhere? Does it radiate? Does anything make it better or worse? Often these patients are going to complain of diffuse pain in their abdomen that is just sort of always there, a chronic aching pain in their belly from their gastric motility disruption. And they will often tell you that the only thing that makes their belly pain better, along with their nausea and vomiting, is this uh, compulsive hot bathing. These patients will tell you that they spend hours a day uh, in the bathtub or the shower because it is the only thing that helps them feel better. So if they tell you this and they say, this is improving while I'm taking those hot, those hot baths or hot showers, that should be a red flag that we might be dealing with cannabis hyperemesis syndrome. Now, just because you do cannabis recreationally or medically, and you're nauseated and vomiting 
doesn't necessarily mean you have cannabis hyperemesis syndrome. When we take care of patients that complain of abdominal pain or nausea and vomiting, specifically in the patients that are older than 40 or so, we have to make sure that we rule out all of the other things first. So remembering that belly pain, nausea, vomiting, et cetera, could be anginal equivalents. And those are people that could be suffering from a STEMI or other uh, catastrophic disease pathologies, you know, mesenteric, mesenteric ischemia, mesenteric, sorry, I can't talk, in ischemia, um, aneurysms, anything of that nature, because sometimes they will actually present atypically. So really make sure that we are we are ruling out all of those things. Get a good picture of their hemodynamics. So EKGs, 12 lead EKGs, end tidal CO2 monitoring, uh, serum glucose assessments, iStats if you have them, whatever, whatever it is that you're using, get a good picture of their hemodynamic or their hemodynamic status and do a good physical exam. I think that we often lack this in EMS. Very seldom do we actually expose patients and do that full head to toe exam. So really get a good picture of them uh, physiologically, physically, and hemodynamically, and go ahead and create your differential diagnosis. Now, again, just because we think that they might have cannabis, cannabis hyperemesis syndrome doesn't mean that they might not be ill with something else. It is possible that you might have appendicitis and just happen to be a chronic cannabis user. So do a good physical exam and rule all those things out. So how do we treat them? We treat them uh, in a couple of different ways. We treat them with uh, antiemetics. So let's talk about those first. So the first antiemetic we should talk about is Zofran or Ondansetron. And this is an antiemetic that we are all very familiar with. So Ondansetron in the adult is dosed at four milligrams IV, IO, or IM. Uh, and in peds, it's dosed as 0.15 milligrams per kilo with a max of four milligrams. That makes sense. We're never going to go uh, beyond the adult dose. So remember that Zofran comes in four milligrams and two milliliters in most cases. And if you're giving it IV or IO, remember that you are supposed to dilute it. So you are supposed to take that Zofran in the four milligrams and two milliliters and actually add it to eight milliliters of saline in a flush and then give it that way because it is known to cause a QTC prolongation. So we do need to make sure that we are diluting it if giving it IV or IO. If we do give it IM, it's okay to give the four milligrams and two milliliters because it is going through a less central route uh, and giving that much volume into an intramuscular space is generally not a good idea. So how does Zofran work? It is a 5-HT3 serotonin receptor agonist and it is an antiemetic and it helps with nausea and vomiting. We all know that. If you've never had Zofran as the patient, you are missing out. It is wonderful uh, if you are not feeling well. And this works great for all of your general things. Generic belly pain, um, the flu, the stomach bug, any of those things, it works really well for these people. Obviously, it works great um, if you give it IV. Uh, it works better and more quickly than if you give it I, uh, IM. There's also PO uh, Zofran that you can get in EMS. We don't often carry that as much. Maybe we should. Um, but most often in EMS, it's IV Zofran. So again, be careful of the QTC prolongation. But other than that, it is relatively safe. From a, from a cannabis hyperemesis syndrome uh, perspective, however, Zofran generally doesn't work that well. It may, it may work on a specific patient and it may work for somebody and it might take the edge off. 
But generally speaking, it's not incredibly effective for CHS patients. The better choice in EMS for the CHS patients, at least here in Pennsylvania, based on our protocols, is droperidol. So if you went to the hospital with cannabis hyperemesis syndrome, they would likely treat you with haloperidol. Haloperidol is an antipsychotic and an antiemetic, and it works wonderfully for cannabis, uh, cannabis hyperemesis syndrome. However, in EMS in Pennsylvania, we don't have haloperidol, but we have droperidol, which is sort of the next best thing. So in the adult, it's dosed at 1.25 milligrams IV, IO, or IM. Uh, we don't have a pediatric dosing protocol for droperidol. Um, in Pennsylvania, it says that if you have this patient in it, that's a pediatric uh, candidate for droperidol, you should contact medical command to discuss options. I don't know a lot of people that are going to give you a droperidol order for a pediatric patient, but stranger things have happened. So the exact mechanism of droperidol is actually still being studied. It's been around since the 90s, but it's a drug that we're not we're not 100% sure of the exact mechanism. Uh, but with that, we do know or we do have a really good hypothesis that is a, it is a dopamine 2 and an alpha 1A adrenergic receptor agonist or I'm sorry, antagonist. So with that, we know that if we give droperidol to a patient who already has a psychoactive drug in their system, it may work better. So this drug is in the, in the form of droperidol is more effective on the CHS patient uh, than the ondansetron. So if I have this patient where I'm pretty certain in my differential that that's what we're dealing with, I'm probably going to lead more towards droperidol than I am Zofran. Again, much like Zofran, please do be careful that it causes QTC prolongation in some cases. That doesn't mean that you should be afraid to give it. Some people uh, tend to get a before and after droperidol 12 lead EKG. If that's the practice that you subscribe to, I think that that's perfectly fine. That's perfectly safe. I am not one of those people. Um, but certainly there's nothing wrong with that. And I don't think that you have to do that. But again, that's just my opinion. So if you do give droperidol, remember that it is also a disassociative medication. So with that said, it, it'll act as a sedative in some cases, and it can make people sleepy. So if we give a patient troperidol, we should expect, even if we give it as an antiemetic, which is a much smaller dose than if we gave it for sedation, we might make them sleepy. And if anytime we give anybody any kind of sedation, we need to have them on end tidal CO2 monitoring. That's so important because it is a measure of their ventilatory status rather than their oxygenation status. And although pulse oximetry is a really good tool, it doesn't tell us all of the information that we need in their clinical picture. So please make sure we have those patients on ETCO2 monitoring. I am a huge fan of entitled CO2 monitoring. We might even do another podcast episode on it. Uh, the way that I practice is very simple. If you're sick enough to get oxygen, you are sick enough to get entitled CO2 monitoring. Likewise, if you're sick enough to get medication from me in the ambulance, you are sick enough to get entitled CO2 monitoring. I think it's just a really good practice. So droperidol, uh, 1.25 milligrams IV or IO or IM in the adult patient works great for cannabis hyperemesis syndrome. So those are good ALS interventions, but what about a BLS intervention? So there's a lot of science out there actually about the effects of isopropyl alcohol um, in these patients. And what do we have that's that has isopropyl alcohol in the ambulance? 
alcohol preps. So we use those uh, for aseptic uh, cleaning of of uh, intravenous and intramuscular uh, injection sites. But what if we used these for uh, anti-medic purposes? So if you give a patient an alcohol prep wipe and you rip it open and you tell them to to put it up close to their nose and actually inhale it, there are some anti-emetic properties to that. Now, when you do this, you have to do a little bit of a good job at explaining it first, because if somebody calls an ambulance and you hand them an alcohol prep wipe, they might look at you like you're a little bit silly and think like, really, dude, I could have done that. But it is important to keep that in mind because it does work. So what about pain control? So if you give these patients droperidol as an anti-emetic, because it has some disassociative effects, it actually might help them with their pain. So keep that in mind. We certainly don't want to over sedate somebody or give them more medication that they need. But certainly if you give them that droperidol and that's working, that might be a good place to just sort of pause that treatment plan. Alternatively, there are some other options. So Catorolac or Toradol, the adult dosing of that is 15 milligrams IV or IO or 30 milligrams intramuscularly. And this works really well. Just be careful. Anybody that we suspect might be bleeding or has an allergy to an NSAID uh, might not be the best medication for them. Likewise, with pediatric dosing, this is perfectly safe. It's 0.5 milligrams per kilo IV or IM, max of 15 milligrams IV or IO or 30 milligrams intramuscularly. And then finally, there's always fentanyl. Uh, if you're going to give somebody fentanyl, uh, this is a wonderful choice for pain control. It is hemodynamically pretty neutral, so it's not going to mess with anyone's blood pressure too badly. Um, and it is a dosage of one microgram per kilo, uh, whether you are an adult or a child. And this is an excellent medication for pain control. But again, just be careful. If you've given them the troperidol already, this might cause them to become a little bit more sedate than you were hoping for. Likewise, also remember that anybody that you give fentanyl to, this is a respiratory suppressant if you give too much. So always remember that we can fix that problem with naloxone. So in the topic of uh, cannabis hyperemesis syndrome, that's all I have for you. Uh, big pearls and takeaways. Um, this is people who have a chronic history of cannabis use greater than one year with cyclic nausea, vomiting, and abdominal pain that have only relief with hot bathing. And in this, these patients can be treated with antiemetics such as droperidol uh, and then pain control if we need to. So please add this to your list of differentials when we're taking care of these patients uh, who have chronic nausea, vomiting, and abdominal pain. And remember that that doesn't make them a system abuser. That makes them somebody who hasn't had their needs met yet by the system. So be the people that are knowledgeable enough to go out there and help the folks that need us to do that. Uh, with the uptick of medical marijuana dispensaries, not only in our area, but around the country, I think we are going to see more of this. Uh, there was some literature out of Colorado um, that they studied this and they had a tremendous uptick in this in their emergency departments after the legalization of marijuana for uh, medical and recreational purposes. So please just keep an eye on that. Add this to your list. And I look forward to hearing from you. If you haven't done so already, please like us on Facebook, uh, follow us on LinkedIn, or send us an email at clinicalconceptspodcast at gmail.com. We'd like to hear from you. We want your feedback. Uh, we are more than happy uh, to talk about any topics that you think would be beneficial. So please send those to us uh, as a listener. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we look forward uh, to sharing some more information for you in the future. So until next time, stay safe, do good care. 